Hi, we are in a new episode of, of the History and Politics podcast. We have Alon Levy. Uh, they is a, a researcher on on urbanism on in the Marron Institute at NYU and and is currently living uh, in Berlin and knows a lot about uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff. It, it, Is, uh, on, on Twitter is one of the most interesting persons out there and I, I think uh, it's it's really a, a blast to to be able to talk uh, with Alon. Um, hi Alon, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, so Alan, you have lived all over the world. You are now in in Berlin. Um, so there is a lot about the, the the hype of of Berlin, and 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 Berlin is a, is a city that that uh, that has been on the hype, I guess you know, for a little bit more of ten years. So, so how do you do you feel about the the, the hype of of Berlin? Um, it's, it's, a lot of people think that Berlin is a very cool city and it's like kind of nice to live here. Um, so I would say that I don't really know. Um, like it's something that I notice. Um, but I mean, I moved here from Paris, so it's not like I came here from, I mean, so I imagine that I know, I, I know a lot of people who are, from not Berlin, maybe from the rest of Germany. Um, and they say, oh, yeah, no, Berlin is much nicer than, I don't know, Münster, than, I don't know, Münster or Dresden or um, one person, I'm forgetting what town they even grew up in, somewhere in Brandenburg. Um, so certain, so there's only the sense that Berlin is a more interesting place to live. Um, but again, I mean, by comparison with what? I mean, by comparison with Paris, Not really. I mean, maybe if you hate France, then sure you like Germany. But um, but I don't think there's this notion of Berlin's like more hype than I don't know Munich, Vienna, Paris, Amsterdam. Yeah, I, I think some of the interest of some people uh, to to move to Berlin was that at least until uh, until uh, I don't know if to call it recently, but at until at some years ago. Like the prices were relatively cheaper than in other places, and I guess that has to do that you know like it feel that Berlin was some place that a lot of you know creative people move oh, like yeah. yeah, so yes, but I mean why so yes, Berlin was very cheap, let's say fifteen years ago, and today. I mean, it's still let's say cheaper than Paris, cheaper than let's say Stockholm, but it's not cheap but i mean berlin of 15 years ago was a high unemployment city i'm forgetting what the unemployment here was 15 years ago it was double digit um i think it was 15 um and it no longer is i mean berlin has had so all of east germany has had high economic growth since reunification i mean people talk about east germany as the part that's left behind yes it's still poorer than west germany but there's a lot of convergence um And Berlin, I don't want to say today because today it's virus, but on the eve of Corona, I think Berlin was down, I want to say to 7% unemployment, which is still, I mean, not good for Germany. I mean, I think Germany is, again, all on the eve of Corona. I think Germany was maybe 4%, um, but still 7% versus 15%. Um, and, uh, and incomes here have increased, and there's also a tax scene here. It's not a big tax scene. I mean... I don't think anywhere in Europe has a big tax scene by, let's say, American standards, but there is a startup scene here. I mean, you, you see the co-working spaces that promise you various startup goodies. They think that there's, they, talk, they talk about um, um, unicorn culture or co-innovation or things like that. Yeah, I I I I think in, uh, there was uh, I'm Peruvian. There was a kind of a project like that here in Peru, but 
I honestly think that the most interesting people in, in the tech scene in Peru are not interested in, in, in startups for different reasons that probably are, are a topic for, for other episodes. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I, I remember like, um, I think Babel, like the this language app is based on, on, on Berlin, if I'm not wrong. And, and there are other, you know, like kind of relatively known, like... Uh, startups technological startups that are are based on 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 berlin and and other parts of germany but that's true i think um now that we talk about germany uh, and and berlin i think it's it's also like uh, there there was a discussion like recently and i think with this we could maybe start uh, dealing with to 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 talk more about like uh, more of your area of research that is um, urbanism topics like um, so there was a protest to to try to to like uh, to try to uh, about rents that I, I didn't yeah. oh, understand yeah. very well. Oh, it, it, it happens here all the time. So um, because Berlin, so 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 a big context for this is again. So Berlin rents have. So Berlin rents, I believe, have risen the fastest in Germany, um, but they've risen from very low levels. So in Berlin, um, up until about a year ago, there I mean, there still is. They made it stronger. Up until about a year ago, they had rent control, which means that as long as you live in the same um, apartment, um, your rent cannot be increased in real terms. Um, if you leave, um, it can be increased by a little bit. Um, so the result is that you have people who... If they've lived in one place, they were paying, you know, 400, 500 euros a month in rent. Um, and if they wanted to leave to, um, I don't know, move to a bigger place, move to a different neighborhood, maybe they hated their apartment. Uh, I know someone who had, uh, I want to say, water problem, like water leak. And then they realized that um, the new, that if they moved to a new place, it would not be 400 or 500, it would be 1,000. Um and they've changed the law since, so now rent control applies even if you move, as long as it's not to a new building. Um, so I live in a new building, so I market rate. But um, and, and a lot of, and uh, even in old buildings, a lot of people ignore the law and just sublet at market rate. Um, but so you have this kind of protest because um, Berlin, again, Berlin is getting richer. I mean, incomes in Berlin even if you subtract out rent payments, are up. Um, again, I'm saying are up, and, and what I'm saying is maybe they were up as of a year or two ago versus 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, I don't know what's happened in the last, I know, six months with Corona. I mean, I imagine everyone's incomes are down. But on the eve of Corona, Berlin was, um, the incomes in Berlin were increasing. Um, it's just that the rents were increasing very quickly. There were a lot of people who were protesting. Um, Berlin also... I want, I'm saying Berlin, but I mean West Berlin. West Berlin has a very active protest culture, um, like a very active counterculture, um, which is something that I've noticed. I mean, I'm involved in some of these um, counterculture communities, and I've seen that. So, for example, it's people who are, um, let's call them on the poorer side of creatives, um, because like everyone talks about creatives, but someone who is a graphic designer and makes websites can call themselves creative okay someone hell someone i mean the title is like an ad agency for the person who oversees the copywriters and the artists is creative director okay and i mean and, and that person is 100 percent corporate like the let's call this person the don draper for people who have watched madman <laughs> um so that's what's called in the richer side of creative. it's basically like just middle class it's just like professional middle class um people um and um then you have, um, but then you have kind of a starving artist type of persona. Um, so it's people who, um, and again, even there, they're like big gradations. I mean, there are people who write video games and have like kind of the mentality of a starving artist, but um, maybe they're earning, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 euros a month, which is very much on the low side for a tech worker. But I mean, if you're earning that, you, I mean, I'm not saying you can live in a giant apartment and, very rich neighborhoods like Charlottenburg, but I mean, you can live. I mean, you can live at market rate um, in a respectable neighborhood um, inside the ring. 
Um, but you can, again, you can go below that. I mean, there's like start, there's a lot of like again this kind of stubborn artist mentality um, where the, it's people who maybe are not used to the fact that everyone else is um, getting rich enough to or to to, um, to afford a thousand euros um, a month in rent. Um, so if they have trouble paying um, rent because maybe they're used to paying 400, 500 and now they realize that they have to pay, if they, if they want to pay 400, 500, they have to live very far out, like on the border of Brandenburg and the far East, a neighborhood with Nazis. Oh, well, um, yeah, I mean, the, the issue of, 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 of this debates that are going on and now I see it a, a little bit more online, uh, because of. I, I I follow a lot of people that, that write in English, and many live in either North America or you know Europe. Um, I have seen it here, but very very limited. But there are some kind of opposition to 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 build, in, in, you know, like uh, in in some residential areas. Um, but but I think it's it's really interesting because I feel that this topic of urbanism wasn't so mainstream before. But no, particularly in in the U.S. with the Yimby and Nimby movement, it's kind of getting like more traction, and it's getting like people interested in the very kind of specific topics. So, how you you can explain what what has been happening? So, as I understand it, okay. So there, are, okay. So I can. So there are people who know this better than I do. Probably in let's call it the Twitter discourse in the United States, a person who knows this best. Probably, I would recommend someone named Jake Anbinder. Um, he's a grad student at Harvard. That he researches that. So that's his thesis. Um, but what I'm understanding, partly from him, partly from a lot of other sources, is um, the term NIMBY. I think was from the, was. So the term NIMBY has always been pejorative. But is, I mean, you never call yourself NIMBY. You call other people NIMBYs. It's like it has this connotation of selfishness. It's from sort of the 70s and at the time they were not talking about housing or rather i mean people blocked new housing but they were not talking about the term nimby as someone who was against housing they were talking about something that in the environmental uh and environmental justice literature is called locally undesirable land uses l-u-l-u so lulus if you will um so for example um again going back to me to my madman reference before um the, like maybe you don't like there to be some kind of industrial use near where you live because you think that um, that's going to bring pollution. Um, so um, if you so it's something that's let's, let's call it a power plant. Um, and I say this by the way, I live very close to a power plant. Um, so maybe a lot of people don't like there to be power plants, but it's, but they understand that there need to be power plants. There needs to be electricity, or maybe or water desalination plants, things like that. Um, waste disposal things that again are like have this kind of connotation of being dirty. Many of them really are dirty and polluting. Um, so people kind of oppose them in their areas. So uh, they were built near where the poorest people lived, um, and there was this kind of complaint from. I don't think from. I don't necessarily think the original usage of the term NIMBY was by let's call them environmental justice people who were opposing how the middle how middle and the upper middle class people um, blocked it in their own areas. I think it was actually from like very elite people who were like maybe representing um, the um, people who are maybe state agencies that were trying to build these power plants and sanitation plants and uh, um, and water treatment uh, and, and uh, maybe and prisons and halfway houses and things like that. And they uh, were just annoyed that um, there was this kind of local opposition to their plans. Um, I heard somewhere, I don't remember where, that maybe even Joe Lieberman was one of the early people to use the term NIMBY as a pejorative. And I mean, Joe Lieberman represented very wealthy places in Connecticut. Um, and uh, so anyway, that, that was, again, this was about things that were viewed as undesirable to the point of dirty and polluting. Um, and then... Um, Meanwhile, there's just not a lot of housing being built in uh, California and in the northeastern U.S. Um, in the 70s, maybe it's because nobody wants to live in the northeastern U.S. There's a, a New York has a mass abandonment. It, in 10 years, goes from about seven to, from about eight to about seven million people. 
Um, people um, use the expression the Bronx as a byline for poverty, decay, burning buildings, um, crime. And then, uh, so maybe it's not that relevant, the people are not building. And then in the 80s and 90s, people want to go back to these cities, um, but you still can't build. Um, and that's where housing prices are increasing. Um, and then in the 2000s, they blow up beyond any kind of proportion just because they haven't been building for, you know, 40 years. New York, New York had this downzoning law in 1961. Um, and within a few years, housing construction in the city plummeted. Um, and again, maybe in the 70s and 80s, it didn't matter very much, but by the 90s, it was felt very strongly. And, uh, whenever they needed to build in areas that were very desirable. I mean, yes, in New York, maybe you can build, maybe they let you build maybe in little corners or really far out, but that's not where people want to live. So whenever you want to, so whenever a neighborhood gets really desirable um, and anyone wants to build there, it, you need to change the zoning law and that's a huge fine. Um, so construction rates in New York are actually down from, I think, the 90s. Um, and... Um, so ask me why people use it, why EMP is certainly important. Um, so in the US, it's because housing prices exploded leading up to the 2000s and it was centered on, on New York, which is where the term EMB came into existence in the United States. And then the most successful, um, political EMBs were in San Francisco, where they all, where they also have this kind of rapid increase, uh, in prices. Hell, the term EMB originally it's not from New York. It's a few years older than New York um, when it comes to building new housing. That's, um, I think it came from Stockholm, actually. And Stockholm has a similar thing where um, in Sweden, the I, in Sweden, I'm not 100% sure why, but basically after, so Sweden had the million program in 1965 to 75, when in 10 years they built about a million public housing units. Um and then they stopped because they no longer needed to build new public housing because the working class had adequate public housing. If anything, they built too much. Um, places in the uh, uh, in, in various suburbs um, had high housing vacancy because there weren't enough people who wanted to live in these uh, in these new units. Um, but also, they didn't have much private sector construction thereafter. So by the 2000s. Stockholm specifically got really expensive, um, um, or rather, it got really expensive if you rented market rate. If you uh, in in Stockholm, if you have rent control, then sure you pay very low prices. But the waiting lists for rent control in central Stockholm are maybe thirty years. I know someone who is my age, I think, so about early thirties, whose parents put them on the waiting list as soon as they were born. I think they got the apartment. Few years ago, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh... So it got so it got really bad, and um, so there was there was, there was a lot of groundswell for building more housing in Sweden, especially in Stockholm, and they actually did it. Starting in 2014, they accelerated housing construction. Again, I'm not 100 percent sure why. Um, um, I've heard conflicting explanations, but um, they've built more housing, and Stockholm is still really expensive, but apparently rents there are actually kind of stable. So they're stable at a very high rate. But they're stable, even though the Swedish economy was doing very well before Corona. Um, there, were, there was lots and lots and lots of immigration. So you had all these immigrants moving into these um, uh, formerly, I don't want to say abandoned, but possibly even never occupied um, public housing units in the suburbs. Okay, that, that's that's interesting. I think one of the interesting issues about like urbanism and and and. and and is that it, it kind of like changed the, the, the visions that are very simplistic, like because a lot of Americans, uh, at least like the more right wingers, the ones that have like a very kind of close mentality thing, you know, like, uh, oh, Sweden is a bunch of socialists uh, that want the state to do everything. And, you know, and, and but, you know, I, I think they also have like recently, like um, at least in Stockholm, like they are not longer asking for uh for papers if you want to put uh, a taco truck or something so the idea that that many neoliberals actually have been saying you know a taco truck in every corner like like the the, the ideal they hope that it is going to to happen in sweden in a very strange way um 
but but also I I remember like a, a very interesting like someone like like did t put two photos uh, on on a tweet like one is is to, I live in a in a in a the put a photo basically of a, of a city in Netherlands where they are near the I, I guess the river in in a very kind of a small house where where I think, you know, and, and the person was kind of trying to tell a story where the people that live near, like go to the uh, coffee shop uh, and, and, and the, and the people know their name or things like that. And, and the other was, you know, a, a city that seemed like out of an anime that says, I live in a, in a, in a, in a very cheap, like, um, housing. And, and, and I, Like it, it's 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 kind of this kind of contrast, and it, it's kind of I think it's it's really interesting because I think it, it's urbanism is, is kind of a a, a, a discourse that can leave people to many places, and in some ways it's kind of much more like uh, visible, and in some ways like for example because Japan is interesting I think in 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 its in its uh, oh yeah Japan is really interesting. Yeah, in its housing policies and and it's it's really like for example, I have been like researching and for example like uh, a, a little bit about it and for example like so Tokyo is expensive but it depends on particular parts not not every part of the city like it's it's and sometimes like people when people say oh a city is expensive they they think all the city is expensive and I guess there are some cases like I guess Palo Alto in 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 the U.S. but but. Either with large cities, like it, it's not always like only one narrative going on. So, will you say something about like Tokyo? So, I've never lived in Tokyo. So, all I can tell you about Tokyo is what I've heard from other people. Um. So, um. Oh my God! It was last year? Last year, um, in uh, in some gaming space here in Berlin, um. Um, so in his gaming space, we meet a lot of um, uh, immigrants, um, and they're not always. It's not always a very simple immigration narrative. Like, let's say, maybe I know someone who is a Colombian immigrant who works in Berlin. That's a simple immigration narrative, but it could be someone like me who's lived in a bunch of different countries, and maybe they're visiting. Um, so anyway, I met these Americans who uh, live in Tokyo, um, and um, and I asked um, what the rent there is like um and unfortunately i don't remember the number all i remember is that um the, is that i asked them and they live in Roppongi, so that's one of the more expensive more central more up-and-coming areas of tokyo it's a it's an area that's kind of very stereotypically for foreigners so um uh google is there uh so um so it's not literally the tokyo central business district I'm like the, or let's call it. It's not, let's say it's not the traditional Tokyo Central Business District, which I mean stuff like Morinochi, uh, um, Hibiya. Um, it's, but it, it's an area that was, again, as I understand it, um, historically very wealthy. Um, so it uh, and, and a lot of um, rich Western foreigners lived there. Um, and then because maybe a lot of also Westerners were not necessarily extremely rich but you know had you know upper middle class skills and income uh also left there so um google which employs i guess a lot of um foreigners itself um located there so there's a lot of new construction there and so you know that area is so expensive i believe that that what they were paying per square meter is less than what i was paying at the time um i mean i'm paying the same just in a bigger apartment now and at the time i was living in neukölln um, Neukölln in Berlin is probably, I want to say, the poorest neighborhood inside the ring. Now, obviously, inside versus outside the ring matters. You go outside the ring's incomes drop, um, um, especially if you go, uh, or rather, I should say, east uh, in East Berlin, incomes drop in West Berlin. I guess Spandau is not a very wealthy area, but if you go southwest of the ring in Berlin, like outside the ring, going southwest, you're getting into places like Wannsee. Which is extremely uh, wealthy. Um, I would say Wannsee might actually be the only part of Berlin that's let, let's call it an American-style suburb. So low density and everyone has a car, but also it got this way 
through early suburbanization of rich people living leaving the city, like in American suburbia. Um, whereas a lot of, um, I would say that most of the rest of outer Berlin is not like that. It's, um, I mean, it's suburban. People own a car more than in the center of the city, but often it's working class suburbanization, maybe, uh, let's call it in stereotype French style. So, um, so it's when the state built, uh, maybe it built public housing in the East. Um, and then maybe it wasn't poor people, but I mean, all Easterners were by the time the wall fell poor by Western standards. Um, or maybe in the, or I want to say in the West, um, it was partly like that, but I'm less certain. Um, but, but you get that. So, so Neukölln, um, so, so Berlin has this really fascinating urban geography. I think I have to explain, um, coming from the wall. So the central business district, that is to say Meta was in the East. Um, but the city was about 50, 50. So there were neighborhoods immediately North and immediately South of Meta that were in the West. Um, in the, so immediately north of Meta, these neighborhoods are called Gesundbrunnen and Fedding. Um, and in the south, the neighborhood immediately south of Meta is called Kreuzberg. And immediately south of Kreuzberg or southeast of Kreuzberg, there is Neukölln. Um, so these areas, as I understand it, not sure about Kreuzberg, but certainly Fedding and, uh, uh, and Neukölln were always poor. Neukölln was originally called Rixdorf. The name Rixdorf had such a terrible connotation that in the 1910s they renamed it Neukölln to you know, so that people would move there and not associate it with you know the crime of Rixdorf. Um, but they were very close to um, the central business district. They were on our um, north-south um, U-Bahn lines because um, Wimpern and Neukölln are connected by a line that is currently called U8. Um, Vedding and uh, Kreuzberg are connected by a line that is currently called U6. Um, they both run north-south. And, um, and the, the thing is, once Mitte was in the east, these areas became kind of severed from the rest of the city because um, they had the connection to Mitte, but Mitte was in the east. The trains passed without stopping. Um, the west rebuilt its center much farther west, um, and they had uh, kind of difficult access. Um, and yeah, so they built new Uban lines to connect these areas with the new center, but they were still kind of out of the way. So um, they remained kind of poor. Um, post-war, you have a lot of Turkish immigrants move to Germany, to, to not Germany, I should say West Germany. Um, and, uh, and, and these immigrants tend to be working class, though they live in poor areas. Um, so a lot of them end up in Neukölln and Gesundbrunnen. Um, and, uh, then the wall falls. Um, suddenly these areas become much closer to Mitte because suddenly the, I mean, there's no more wall. Um, businesses are returning to Mitte. Mitte has been built back up as, um, the central business district. The trains don't skip stops anymore. Um, so suddenly these areas are more desirable. Um, and um, like what? And meanwhile, we have so we have these areas, and maybe the inner areas of East Berlin, um, where um, as soon as the wall fell, people from the West just moved there because they had effectively free housing by Western standards. Um, now we have more immigrants coming into Germany. Within Berlin, they tend to end up in these traditional immigrant neighborhoods again, like Köln, Wedding, Kreuzberg, Kreuzberg. But um, the so so these areas, I won't say they're getting more expensive, but all of Berlin is getting more expensive. It's just if if like really if you want cheap housing in Berlin, you have to go outside the ring. If you want really cheap housing, you have to go far outside the ring, going east in neighborhoods where um the where yeah you're probably like commuting I don't know half an hour on a train to Meta. Um and maybe if you're listening to this and you live in New York and you think a half hour commute is bad. Uh, sorry, it's not bad. I mean, in Berlin, I mean, Berlin's on a valid, okay? Half-hour commutes here are not the end of the world, but you are kind of out of the way of everything. Um, so, like, maybe your commute to work is half an hour, but all the social events um, that you might want to go to, they're not literally where you work. It's 45 minutes an hour. Um, whereas inside the ring, it's, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes off. 
Um, and uh, so who lives in deep East Berlin? It's not so much immigrants, actually. I mean, immigrants don't generally end up there. Again, they end up in these working class, somewhat um, looked down upon neighborhoods that are on U8. U8 has this terrible reputation among native-born Germans. Um, and um, then, uh, so who lives in deep East Berlin? It's I want to say it's Nazis, but I mean, it's not, I'm not going to call them Nazis, okay? Like the Nazis have like, I don't know, 20, 30% of the vote in deep East Berlin, right? Most of the people in deep East Berlin do not vote for IFD. They mostly do not vote Nazi. But, I mean, it does matter that you have 20, 30% voting for the Nazis over there, whereas in Neukölln, I think it's a single, it's, it has to be low or mid single digits. I mean, the, I mean, these neighborhoods over here and then like Neukölln, because I'm they're full of all these posters um, saying things like Nazis out or um, I, saw, I saw at one point um, graffiti um, saying calling a Corona for the not Corona for for AFD. Oh. Well, now, now that you mention it, I think it's 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 worth like understanding like the the concept of of urbanism and and, and its relationship with gentrification and, and immigration. Um, so I think it's it's interesting because I think that that it shows also I think that that's why I, I really like the, the this topic about like discussing this or urban topics because it shows a lot of the contradictions that sometimes are not you know like so uh, clear cut in, in some ideological constructs. So for example, uh, in the U.S., a lot of of, of 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 progressives claim to be in favor of immigrants and, and, and other things like that, but you know, for example, um, uh, you know, San Francisco and and New York City have had very, uh, as 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 it, you mentioned earlier, um, how to say, restrictive uh, construction policies that make it very expensive to construct, and and obviously, like uh, if particular immigrants uh, or people of color in general are you know like are you know have you know rising rents and their income is not rising so they have to move and i think new york city has been one of the few cities that it was actually losing its population uh since last year i think and 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 the same thing happens in a lot of other places that also you know we have talked uh a bit about the, the the Berlin hype, but other city that has had some hype is Portland in in Oregon, and for example, Portland is a curious example. And and, and you mentioned Nazis in, in 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 Germany, but Portland is is like it's it. I think it has a narrative because of the the series Portlandia, but but it actually has a lot of Nazis and 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 people who watch the, the there are. Some uh, a report I think says that that is the city with more Nazis in, in all in all the United States, which is impressive because Portland is not that big. But if if people have seen the manifestations of this kind of, and it's very curious because it also kind of fit. It's a very wide city in reality, like Portland, and and it 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 it, it is. Uh, and it has been coming even wider, which is cool. Sound weird because generally, like uh, for immigration and other things, like uh, people moving, just Americans of, of color moving to other uh, parts of the country. Like uh, generally, cities have become much more diverse, but Portland actually has become much more wide. And, and it, it's kind of like th this shows the contradictions between like some narratives and and some kind of. Um, I think some people have even called. That there is kind of sometimes even a tacit alliance between some of the more reactionary elements of 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 of, of the liberal coalition and and some of the more um, you know even people that have openly racist and and views and and how how do you see this this kind of complexity? So in Berlin, it's very different. Um, so yeah, in the US, there are specific neighborhoods where you actually see um, demographic shifts away from people of color toward um, white people. So, for example, in New York, um, Bushwick is such an example. Um, I want to say that the share of the population of Bushwick that is 
non-Hispanic white, I want to say grew maybe 10 points, like I want to say maybe 20, going from 20 to 30%. And I'm forgetting how many years, not a lot of years, I want to say 10 years. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but if I'm wrong, it's not three years and it's not 20, it's 10 plus minus. Um, and, um, and, and then maybe overall, New York and San Francisco, maybe the white chairs are maybe stable or something. Um, after long eras of white flight, but Berlin is still a white flight city. Um, so Berlin is a very white city, but, but Germany is a very white country. Um, so I'm going to switch from the American definition of white, which is non-Hispanic white, to the German definition of white, um, which is someone who is a, <coughs> sorry, someone who is a first or second generation immigrant from a non-European country. And I mean, you can also drop maybe Israel or the United States, but there, are not, there aren't enough Israeli Germans or American Germans for this to make a difference. Um, or Latin American Germans, like I said, like over here, I would say that someone from Peru would be considered white. Um, yes. Whereas someone from Turkey would not be, and in the US, it's the opposite. So anyway, using the German definition, Germany is, I believe, eight maybe nine percent people of color. Berlin is about seventeen or eighteen percent. Um, these proportions are growing steadily because of immigration, um, but they're growing from very low levels. And uh, so, so Berlin is maybe seventeen, eighteen percent people of color, and even for Europe, it's not that high. I mean. Paris, I want to say, is 30, like, not the city, the city is more. The entire region of Paris is, I believe, 30%. London is maybe 37. Um, so Berlin is just a very white city, and, the and for example, the, polit the political leadership of Berlin is even whiter. So we're, again, we're maybe 17%, 18% first and second generation immigrants from non-European countries. Um, and maybe if you only look at people who are German citizens, it's less than that, because a lot of or maybe a lot of immigrants were not naturalized. So among citizens, it's maybe 9%. And then you look at the composition of the city council or the state legislature. It, I mean, it's a city state, so it's both. Um, it's seven out of 160. So four and a half percent. And all these radical countercultural spaces I mentioned before, um, they talk about how anti-racist and intersectional they are. It, many of them have literally never seen a person of color. Um, and these are spaces in Neukölln. Neukölln is a diverse neighborhood. Neukölln, I want to say, is 55% people of color. Um, again, I may be wrong, but if I'm wrong, I'm not wrong, and it's not 55 but 90, uh, or 50, not 55 but 20. If I'm wrong, then it's not 55 but like 60 or something like that, or 50. Um, so you have these extreme... So, so even though in Neukölln, I mean, you have this kind of spatial integration... You don't have social integration. And yeah, all the people who talk about gentrification in Berlin are white and are, are, are white Germans. And um, they and uh, and one of the um, radical left zines here was even complaining about how, thanks to gentrification, a very uh, common leftist bar where a lot of um, leftist events are held called Bilaga, um it's um, they they said that it uh, is closing due to gentrification. Like they, they, it was, it had to pay a, a a higher rent or something. So they said because of gentrification, they might um, they were threatened with closure. But I mean, you're a bar. I have never seen a person of color in that space. The specific area of Neukölln where Belaga is um, is a rapidly diversifying area. Neukölln. Okay, it's not just it's not just in Neukölln. It's fifty five percent people of color. The proportion of people of color is steadily increasing. Neukölln has white flight. The extent of white flight in Neukölln is roughly comparable to that of New York City between nineteen fifty and nineteen seventy. Um, and um, and those people who call themselves intersectional and anti racist, um, they're not particularly comfortable around foreigners. Okay, they don't they're not particularly comfortable around immigrants around minorities. Um, like one of them, for example, told me um, to be careful of crime in Neukölln, especially to be careful of Turkish people. Um, there's this kind of, I mean, because, and I mean, nobody ever calls them racist because who would find it racist? Immigrants and minorities. They do not socialize with immigrants and minorities. I mean, maybe they 
do charity work. Uh, so, so this specific person who told me to be where there are Turkish people in Iran um, is does charity work with, um, I think, immigrant, I want to say immigrant children, but maybe I'm wrong, it's immigrant youth, but like helping um, refugees, again, I believe refugee children to learn German. So it's a very nice thing. But I mean, someone who, I mean, you're a refugee, you don't speak German very well, someone is teaching you German, you're not going to call this person racist to their face. I mean, you're going to tell your friends, my teacher is racist, maybe. You're not going to call your teacher racist to the teacher's face. So, so you have these people who, again, they're not extremely racist or anything. They don't vote for the Nazis. They hate the Nazis. They support more immigration to Germany, but they don't think about immigrants very much. Um, so, yeah, so maybe they're uncomfortable around all of the spaces where you have immigrants. Uh, uh, all the, um, so in German, it's called a shisha bar. In American English, it's called a hookah bar. I do not know what it is called in Peru. Um, um, like the bars where you have people um, smoking. Again, I don't know what it's called, but I do not know whether that has a name in uh, uh, in Spanish or in or in Peru. I just know it, it's very regional names, and in every country it's called something different. Yeah. Um. So so that's so so that's where you see a lot of Middle Easterners in like or places where people believe backgammon, and then the radical leftist places you only ever see white people. Again, Belaga, places like that. Um, so, so a lot of this discourse about gentrification, at least in Berlin, is like white Germans, white Aryan Germans who are maybe uncomfortable with the direction the city is going, but they can't say, I hate immigrants or I hate Middle Easterners. They, like, they understand that hating Middle Easterners is a bad thing. They do not think of themselves as people who hate Middle Easterners. Again, they do not vote for politicians who hate Middle Easterners. They will, and if a politician openly says something negative about Middle Easterners, they will try to vote against them. Um, um, and if a politician says we need more immigration, they are likely to vote for that politician. Um, but they're still kind of racist. Um, because they're maybe, again, they're not used to diversity, a change in the, even a change in which a neighborhood gets more diverse, they think it's, it makes them uncomfortable, so they blame it on something that does not make them feel bad. So they can't say, ooh, because of immigration, Nicaragua is bad. They can't say that because they identify as anti-racist. So they say, because of gentrification, Nicaragua is getting worse. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I think that, uh, as I mentioned, I'm from Peru, and and, and obviously, you know, the, the, the economic collapse of Venezuela that has been happening, you know, this last years have you know, generated a, a massive, like, uh, exodus from Venezuelans that have, go, like, most to Colombia because it's closer to Venezuela. But uh, the second country in receiving, like, much more uh, refugees, uh, it was, is Peru. Uh, so, like, the, the early, like, Venezuelan immigrants that, that came, like, were, I will say, professional. I would say, like, general middle to upper middle class so they were kind of received very, like, very kind of hands open, like, and it it was felt like it, interesting because in, in Peruvian history there has been like a, a lot of effort to bring immigrants, uh, particular like um, white immigrants. So uh, it like Peru tried to to get European immigrants for a while, but 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 they preferred to go like to Argentina to to or or to Brazil generally. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the the thing that happened after that was that uh, like the Venezuelans that started to came after were generally much more either lower middle class or or you know like poor, really really poor, and and they were generally either you know like mestizo or or dark skinned mestizo particularly or or you know Afro Venezuelans, so. Uh, Peru has a, 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 an Afro-Peruvian population, but it but it's not as large as, as the Afro-Venezuelan population. So they kind of you know like represented kind of a contrast, and and it started to get even you know like his this kind of you know like anti-immigrant feelings, which was kind of weird. 
but despite it, I, I I don't think people were kind of like you know like a goal to uh, like there were one or two politicians that were kind of saying you know like we should like stop but but you know at, at you know basically like the population that came like was almost one million of of, of Venezuelans so some have prospered some didn't and well this crisis has led many to return but. I mean, I, I, I say this as, as as an example that you know, like receiving one million country, one million people almost in a country like Peru that has you know very corrupt and and you know like ineffectual institutions, and the country didn't like you know bankrupt or anything like you know people contribute to the economy. There was a research done by a large bank here that said that basically like if something like the Venezuelans, uh, the you know, like kind of a slow stop the, 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 which was going to happen. It was going to be a start of a recession. Now for the coronavirus pandemic, basically it's going to be a recession everywhere in Latin America, but it, it seemed that it was going to, uh, to start happening in Peru, but they kind of make it stop for a while. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's curious. I mean, um, I think that that sadly this kind of of of, of discussions sometimes are, are you know like very kind of uh, sometimes even I I will say as you know in a metaphysical level you know like the people talk about like uh you know immigration but it, it sometimes it, it's a reality or people seeing you know like uh, for days it was seen like you know thousands of people crossing the, the Peruvian border so it's obviously you know like uh, a need of people many times have to immigrate and. And I, I, I'm really surprised how a lot of Europeans uh, and, and, and people in North America and other richer countries that have, you know, much more stable institutions are, are much more receptive of immigration, despite it, you know, there have been researchers, uh, research about the, you know, the the benefits of immigration in and, and that they still don't want to accept immigrants. So how how you see that? So in Germany, it's kind of weird in that um, in 2015, Germany generally took in a lot of refugees. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers. I believe 700,000 um, in 2015, and maybe there was like maybe another, I want to say 200, 300,000 in 2016. Um, and it was very obviously good for Germany. Um, so I don't think this is what Merkel was thinking when she let them stay in Germany um, in 1516. I think she, I mean, I mean, she justified it on humanitarian grounds. Um, like the, the way it has been positive for Germany um, requires you to kind of disagree with Merkel's main economic ideas um, because Germany has a budget surplus um, and extremely low inflation. And it gets to the point that um, it's, debt interest rate is either negative or basically zero, like 0 0.0 something percent. Um, so when the immigrants came in 1516, Germany spent money on integration programs and that created stimulus. Um, so even spending money on refugees was good for the German economy four or five years ago. Um, and it certainly would be now if, for example, Germany actually lets, let's say, Hong Kongers move in. Um, not that Hong Kongers really want to move here. I mean, the ones who are thinking of emigrating are going to stay in Asia, maybe go to Canada, Australia, maybe Britain. I mean, easier with the language. But um, uh, but but the but immigration has been so unambiguously good for Germany just because population growth here otherwise would be negative. So it means that you can't invest. So. Um, so, so that creates um, problems. So that creates economic problems for really any kind of investment, let's say in housing and infrastructure. Um, and once you have positive population growth, um, it becomes easier. So, so businesses want to invest even without the government constantly printing money for them. Um, but again, this is not. I mean, so it has been very good for Germany. And separately, Germans support it, but not for that reason. It's a lot of this comes from like a humanitarian reason. Um, which I think, I think it dovetails to kind of like a geopolitical sense in Sweden, in Sweden, you have this, a lot of, you have a lot of people who are genuinely interested in human rights. And even if they're personally 
more racist than they think they are, like the people I told you before about Berlin. Um, so in Sweden, even if they are kind of like that, they so it, it, my understanding is because Sweden was neutral in the Cold War. Um, during the Cold War and after the Cold War, it was thinking about like random human rights things that nobody else was looking at, maybe because they didn't fit a certain geopolitical picture of USSR bad, USA good, or conversely, USSR um, got good, USA bad. Um, and, um, and I mean, Germany obviously wasn't neutral, but, and, and it's, a, it's a NATO member, but Germany doesn't really like NATO geopolitics. It's not spending as much on the military as NATO says it should. It's completely okay with it. They don't care. Whereas, let's say, France and Britain have bigger militaries. Um, so, so I think that, that kind of relates to what Germany is doing. But again, people in Germany are kind of uncomfortable around immigrants. Um, and it definitely matters how rich these immigrants are. So, I mean, maybe they're more comfortable around me than around um, a minimum wage um, Syrian worker. But, I mean, I'm also white. Um, and maybe I don't speak German, but I'm white. And, like, they understand that I'm Jewish. So they, like, make an extra effort not to be racist. <laughs> um, and um, they, so, so it's, it's unclear. I mean, the so there's a clear electoral majority in Germany in favor of continuing liberal immigration policies. Um, now, as it happens, the Minister of the Interior happens to be on the anti-immigrant side, Seehofer. Um, but um, so what he's doing is he's requiring refugees to apply for a status in the first European country they enter, often Greece, where there are no jobs for them. Um, but even then, I mean, a pretty hefty share of people apply for asylum in Germany and got it, rather than being sent back to Greece. Um, and um, and again, part of it is humanitarian. And again, it's only a million people. Um, it's I think at this point there are 160,000 applicants a year. I don't remember what share of them get um, get to stay in one, I think maybe two thirds of them get to stay and one third get kicked out to like Greece or something. Um, and, um, the, so, so again, it's like maybe a hundred, hundred, 120,000 per year, um, actually got to stay. And I mean, you could ever ask questions about more or less because nobody knows the numbers. So everyone makes up numbers. Um, but again, I mean, there's general support here for like liberal policies about asylum, about work visas. Um, but, but I don't know to what extent it's generalized. In France, it's just weird. In France, Macron's generally very centrist, but on immigration, he's well to the left of most of France. That's interesting. I, 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 I like, yeah, I, I I know French, but I don't, like I, I can read it, but I have I haven't read that much about France lately. Um, yeah, I mean, like France is, is a very complex case, I guess. Um, like um, my mother, uh, she's Peruvian, but she like uh, she studied uh, like her PhD in, in molecular biology there because like here there weren't uh, graduate programs in in, in that area, uh, so. Like when she went like in the seventies, like people thought like she was you know from the Middle East, <laughs> like and some people even talk her in in Arabic. But when I went to like I have been like only as a tourist to to Paris and and and, and Berlin, and actually like I, I didn't even like open my mouth and people start speaking to me in Spanish. <laughs> so I, I guess like there is kind of a consciousness that you know like brown people are not you know generically like Arabic or Middle Eastern. So I guess in that sense it has changed a little bit um, the the situation. Uh, some people will say also, you know, like how they could know that I'm from Latin America and, and not from uh, because I have some relatives that could look more Central Asian. I guess could pass as Tajik or Kyrgyz because also Peru has a, had had a, a large uh, oh, Chinese immigration. Yeah. So so uh, yeah. So I, I don't know how you you see that that people are trying to to to, to see. Uh, so it's it's very kind of complex in some way, like being more inclusive, but at the time, like categorizing you in a in putting you in a category in a particular category. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like I think I'm, I I imagine that people here just think of Latin of 
Brazilians as a type of Portuguese and of Spanish Americans as a part of the Spaniard. Um, but I mean, I'm basing this on um, interacting with the, with a number of Latin American immigrants here, but they are for the most part pretty solidly middle class. Um, so, so again, I don't know what it would be with things that Germans would understand to be markers of poverty. But I mean, general in general, immigrants don't always give off the exact same class perception. Um, so, for example, I heard it in the United States. Um, maybe not in all of the United States, but certainly in like certain very snooty parts of the Northeast, people associate sparkling water with um, kind of wealth or like kind of specifically kind of very snooty wealth, um, like educated in the right way, having the right opinions or whatever. Um, and um, then maybe if you're from, let's say, Germany, sparkling water is much more common. Um, but then maybe you're from, if you're from, I don't know, Israel or from, um, or from, I don't know, from East Asia or something, there's just no such thing as sparkling water. Um, so, so the markers would be different. Um, and so, so maybe it's, I mean, generally immigrants don't always notice certain local class distinctions and also don't give the, the same local class distinctions. Like so yeah. if, you want, if you want a more concrete example, when I uh, when I had just moved to New York, um, 2006, um, I went to some social event in Bedford Stuyvesant. I had no idea that Bedford Stuyvesant was supposed to be a poor neighborhood or a black neighborhood. I mean, I just knew someone was organizing it, and um, and, and and I went there, and nothing about the neighborhood looked poor to me because I had literally just moved in maybe three weeks before, so I didn't notice any of the markers of poverty bed is an incredibly poor neighborhood okay like it's not it's not like oh it's not like i'm in a i don't know middle class black area and they and everyone should think it's poor but it's not poor no bed really is very poor um and again i didn't notice any of that um because i didn't know what to look for having literally just arrived in the united states and i'm not the only one i know a canadian who uh um, lives in a uh, gender in, in a very rich part of Brooklyn. Who, um, when they first moved to America, they uh, looked for housing in Brooklyn, um, and one of the neighborhoods they looked at was Bed Stuy, and they liked it very much. And uh, uh, and nothing there looked poor to them. They didn't end up moving there. They ended up again moving to a different part of Brooklyn. Um, one sense is gentrified a lot more. But what they told me is that, oh, yeah, I posted about this apartment in a, on a forum and all the Americans screamed either, you're crazy, you could have been killed, or you evil gentrifier. It's just, again, this Canadian who had just moved in didn't recognize any of the class markers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in Peru, it in some areas, it's very difficult to, like, in indigenous areas, it's very difficult to distinguish who is rich, who, who, who isn't. Uh, and that's, well, that's a really very complex story to, and, and I guess, like, it also probably in, in some episode, I should talk with, with someone to, who knows more about. Uh, about yeah, I'm not, I'm not an expert in immigration. I can just tell you what I have experienced. Yeah, 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 that's, 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 that's true. Um, so I think it has been a really interesting um, conversation, Alan. So um, I think people go follow them. Uh, they in I think in Twitter and where where else could could people see what you're doing? So my blog is pedestrianobservations.com. Again, pedestrianobservations.com without a hyphen. Um, that's where you write about, um, th this is where I write about things, mostly about public transportation, less about urbanism. Um, but sometimes I write about EMB things. Um, I, I, I write, I do a lot of comparisons. So I'm probably most famous for doing a comparison of costs of public transportation um, between different countries. Um, and uh, so, for example, I will tell you why it's really expensive uh, in uh, in the United States and to some extent the other English-speaking countries. And maybe in Germany, it's I don't know, nor it's like average. Or in France, it's average. And then in 
Southern Europe is very cheap, or in Scandinavia, it's very cheap. Um, Korea is also very cheap. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I think it's it's as I have said, it, it's a topic that that is that has many angles, and and there are in really interesting angles. I think we could have talked uh, a lot more stuff but I, I think it will have take much longer so so anyway really thanks Alan it's always great talk uh, thanks 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 for having me on it, it was it was really great it was a really great conversation about different topics uh, thanks yeah sure